The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Enviro Show it is here on SAFM with me, Nancy Richards. It's arguably the greenest show on the on the station, but I hope you're going to stay with us and find out a little of what we have lined up for today. And Kim Winter, Rob Parkin on the other side of the glass. And don't forget, if you'd like to join us, you're welcome. The number is 0892102010. Well, we do indeed have a very full programme tonight, so I'm going to get stuck straight into the lineup. First up, we're going to be chatting to the director of a documentary called The High Cost of Cheap Gas. He's Geoffrey Barbie, and he gives us his take on fracking in Botswana. As they say, yes, we're definitely not alone on this controversial topic. And today I had the, the opportunity to attend another of Oxfam's open dialogues on the links between hunger, inequality and low-carbon development in South Africa. Well, we're going to be getting a little bit of feedback from that on one, from one of the panellists who is Advocate Johnny DeLanger, ANC MP and also member of, uh, also chair of the Portfolio Committee, Committee of Water and Environment. So look forward to hearing his take on it. We'll also be featuring one of the green world design capital projects. This time it's the Philippi Wetlands Project. We'll be talking to Design Space Director Lianda Mpalwa. And uh, to close in our green goodie, we'll be chatting to Shane Petzer. He's at the Magpie Art Collective in Barrydale. And he'll be telling us all about their annual recycled Christmas tree event. Always uh, lots and lots of fun. But first, before we do any of that, I've got two things to tell you. First of all, if, uh, if geology is something that you uh, have always had a hankering for, Random House Streak are offering an invitation to, a brand new bo- to the launch of a brand new book. It's called Geology Off the Beaten Track, Exploring South Africa's Hidden Treasures. So if you need a reason to get yourself out and about around uh, South Africa and have a look at some of the, the ground that's beneath your feet and understand it, the launch is happening on Monday the 2nd of December at the Ezeko Natural History Museum. So that's Monday the 2nd of December, Ezeko Natural History Museum between 5.30 and 6, or 5.34-6, should I say. That's the launch of Geology Off the Beaten Track, exploring South Africa's hidden treasures. And the other thing that we'd like to share with you is that uh, is, is chat to Happy Kumbale, Kumbule, Kambule. He's the Western Cape Club coordinator of the Project 90 by 2030, and he was one of a group of young South Africans recently returned from COP19 in Poland, as you know. Well, their aim of being there was, in fact, to observe the climate change talks and give as much input as, as they could of themselves and uh, learn all that they could there in order to build a movement of youth voices from the Southern Hemisphere for the crucial 2015 talks, which uh, were uh, to reach a binding agreement to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Well, Happy Kombuli, wonder what he came back with. Hi, Happy. Hi, how are you? I hope you are happy since you've been back. I hope it was fruitful. And I'm sure you hate many of those sort of jokes, so I'm not going to belabor it. But, uh, Happy, you went there with the intention, with all very good intentions. But what did you want to come back with? Essentially, what we wanted to come back with is to learn, um, to learn the process of what the UNFCCC entails and to also connect with the other Global South members, um, be it the different countries within the continent as well. And what did you learn about the process? Because from what I well, from what I experienced with when we had COP17 here in South Africa, there's such an enormous, overwhelming amount. It's quite difficult to sort of unpack it or unpick it and find out what the process really is. Yeah, um, I mean, it is very chaotic. It's mm. very complex. But I guess depending on where you come from, uh, meaning your background, uh, you get a certain sense of how things actually work. Being that I come from a legal background, understanding the process and what 
it relates to kind of makes sense um, in the long run as well. I think one of your objectives also was to give as much input as possible. Did you find that there were platforms to have your voice heard? Yes, um, there were many platforms. I mean, the South African delegation itself was very open to what civil society was willing to say and to give us input. And they were more than welcome to welcome a group of young people from South Africa to engage with. And likewise with the other neighboring countries, uh, the delegations in those areas were quite open to talking to young people, especially from South Africa. So that was quite refreshing. And what was your input? Well, my input was mainly around the mitigation strategies South Africa has been pushing forward, mainly the, the priorities. And... Um, the ADP moving forward, what will the legal binding agreement look like, um, as well as what the role of the youth could be in actually being the watchdogs in their domestic capacities. I'm sure it won't have escaped your notice that, in fact, just last week, I think it was, or maybe been the week before, we were talking to uh, Rashmi Mistry from Oxfam, uh, who was telling us about the fact that there was a walkout of a whole lot of NGOs. Did, yes. did you feel, did you sense their frustration? Of course. Um, I, I'm more than, I more than felt the frustrations and I felt like I should have been part of the walkout, but there's two sides to, the, to how you could engage in such matters and I felt that I should be here uh, personally and proactively deal with these issues, which in essence made the others walk out. I was with Rashmi the day before the walkout, mm. and she was actually sharing the same um, uh, concerns. Yes, quite a difficult one, that sort of thing that you have to make a decision pretty quickly. Yeah. You mentioned that coming from a legal background, on a personal note, you're also a coordinator of, uh, with Project 90 by 2030, who do a huge amount of different work. Do you think that that it's the legal route that we have to take to get... I mean, is it is it through legislation that we are going to get ourselves on track in terms of climate change? I, I don't think it's solely legal. I think there's, it's one of the most important uh, aspects we should be looking at, but there are other aspects which we should be looking at and that which are um, essentially the driving force around the actual change. What the legal uh, document will do or the legal text, it will just cement what should be happening. But everything else will be driving that change towards the legal agreement. Happy, I guess it's the, the thing about the young voices. I mean, you, you, your group from South Africa, and I'm sure there were many others from other different countries. Do you, do you, as a young person, do you feel sort of mildly despairing or do you feel that, you know, the answers are in your hands and you and your generation are going to have to do something about it seeing as the previous generations seem to be failing you well i th i think it's, it's um i don't want to say the previous generation is failing mm. us, but i think it's now becoming a more collaborative effort to say that well we know that we're going to be living with this so let's work with you now since you've got all the knowledge and the experience and we've got all this drive and, and yearning to learn, well, let's work together and we'll come up with a solution. And I think that's what is coming out across uh, within even the UNFCC process where the young people are also working closely with the older guys.
Well, happy. Hopefully, you'll keep us posted with what you know, with what action you are able to take. And also, I know that, as I say, Project Ninety by Twenty Thirty do a huge amount of things. So, keep in touch, will you? And just let us know when there's some action that you think other other young people or anybody could perhaps follow. We'd be really interested to hear. And if anybody would like to know more, Project Ninety by Twenty Thirty. Your website is. Our website is nine zero. Yeah. X twenty thirty. And we're also on Twitter and on Facebook. Brilliant. All right, my dear, we'll look forward to hearing from you again. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, and welcome back. Happy Kambule is one of the group of young people who were there at COP19 in Poland. But if you'd like to find out more about Project 90 by 2030, it's 90x2030, just to spell it out, .org.za. And as I say, I hope he does keep in touch and keep us uh, up to speed with what they're up to. Stay tuned. The Enviro Show. Well, the issue of fracking and the Karoo is a, a debate that seems to be so critically under-resolved. But it's not just an issue here in South Africa, it's also an issue in Botswana. The High Cost of Cheap Gas, it's the name of a documentary that's been made on the topic by director Jeffrey Barbie. And the story is thus, let me just give you a little bit of input here. The government of Botswana has admitted to granting fracking licenses in the southern African nation after a documentary exposed operational authority, operations authorities had previously denied. According to the film, those uh, the high cost of cheap gas, those activities are happening in environmentally sensitive areas, including the country's Kalahari National Park, home to one of the world's largest elephant herds and a well-known tourist destination. Well, we've got Geoffrey on the line. Hi, Geoffrey. Hi, thanks for having me. Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Uh, we, we're talking to you from the point of view of a film director, uh, you know, of this particular documentary. Are you an environmentalist? Are you a film director? What is your, you know, how are you coming into this? Well, I'm a journalist, okay. and I come from rural western Colorado originally, and that is a place that one of the spots on the planet that the fracking industry carried out a lot of this research that led to this boom in natural gas. So I come from this as a, as a person who's watched this happen in their home, and now in my adopted home in Southern Africa, I'm, I'm very interested to get the debate rolling here so that people can be informed. Because one thing that we found in Colorado is the better informed a community is, the cleaner the industry tends to be. And, uh, you know, I suppose we're all looking for, for black or white or yes or no or a tick or a cross. Has it been successful in Colorado, I, I mean, however one measures success? Well, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a very loaded question. Yes. I think it's an important question because it also defines what is important and to whom. You know, if you're making money from this industry and you own the rights underneath your own farm, um, then maybe you're getting some benefit from it. You might, and I have spoken to many people who feel that the benefit they're getting maybe doesn't outweigh the 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 problems that it's caused on their farms but nevertheless there's a there's definitely a debate there to be had and here in southern africa though the government owns the mineral rights underneath people's land so that particular direct benefit of cash coming into a local economy through the pockets of farmers and landowners is not a debate that's relevant here in southern africa because that will not be happening Yes, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, how successful has it been? It depends how you measure success. I suppose perhaps a better question would be how safe 
has it been? Has it polluted the water sources, as uh, uh, there are concerns here in South Africa? I'm, I'm still with Colorado at the moment. Has it polluted water sources? What have the outcomes been? How has it been felt in the environment around, surrounding Well, I think it's important to understand when you're having a debate about it here in Southern Africa that in the United States, this industry has been offered by the government a very strong level of advocacy and protection, which means that, for instance, if you were going to build a house on a river in Colorado and you were going to discharge the sewage from your house into the river, you would need a license to do that, and most likely you would not get one. But in fact, the fracking industry is not bound by these laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, or the Community Right to Know Act. And that's a loophole that was built into the 2005 energy bill passed by the Dick Cheney, by Dick Cheney and his friends. It's called the Bush-Cheney Energy Bill. So we don't have a lot of data in the United States about these activities. And people say this has been going on for so long and so safely. But in fact, as a journalist looking critically at this issue, it's very important to understand what is the fact, not just what does the industry science say, but what does independent science say? And only now, with some of the new sort of, I would say, scrutiny that the Obama administration has given the fracking industry, are, is new science coming out about this. And the great thing about the film that we've just produced, in my opinion, is that we follow very carefully the science, these independent researchers in the United States. And it's clear particularly where I come from in Garfield County. Parachute Creek is a large acknowledged natural gas spill. They spilled um, tons and tons, in fact, thousands of tons of benzene into Parachute Creek, and they have still not cleaned it up. 200, well, I don't know what you'd say, and so I think it's about $20 million, so I believe that's 200 million rand later. It's still a mess. So it's not that this is the every creek is polluted in my area, but these things have happened, and why have they happened, and how can you prevent them from happening in South Africa is really one of the sort of ten tenets of this documentary. Yes, and I'm sure it's all very country-specific, all very region-specific. And, you know, as I quoted there from your website, um, what we're looking at in Botswana is that the, the fracking activity is happening in very, very environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, you know, it's the Kalahari National Park. It's a home to one of the world's largest elephant herds. So it's, it's Well, actually, the Central Kalahari Game Reserve is, is not home to the elephant herds. And I think that it's gotten a little confused in some of the reports in the media because they're fracking in three different parks. Okay. So one of the parks, Chobe National Park, is a national park, and there are fracking licenses, gas exploration licenses there right now. And there is drilling on the edges, which we know about because we went and saw it. And that's the area. Thirty to 60,000 elephants move from the Chobe complex over to Zimbabwe and then back on a yearly cycle. And yes, indeed, that... That is a very sensitive area, but also the Central Kalahari Game Reserve is home to the San Bushman people. And the Central Kalahari Game Reserve was under lots and lots of licenses when we went and did the research for this film. And we know for a fact, we've spoken to some of the drillers, that they were drilling inside the park already. So these things are happening, and as far as we could ascertain, there wasn't a lot of community or public participation. You mentioned three different parts, so Chobe National Park, Central Kalahari Game Reserve, and the third part? 
Kahalahati Transfrontier okay. Conservation Area. And a Transfrontier Conservation Area is a national park that spans borders. So the Transfrontier Conservation Area there is connected to the Hemsbach National Park here in South Africa. So, you know, you're, you're talking about developing, and I've seen the licenses, there's many of them, at least 25, inside of the, of the Botswana side of a national park that spans these two countries' borders. I would be very curious to find out what uh, the National Parks of South Africa thinks mm-hmm. about these uh, industrial activities taking place in a protected area that they share. Extraordinary. So it, as far as you know, it wasn't put forward for public participation, public uh, approval at all. It, no, it wasn't. I think the Botswana government has been good in the last week about coming sort of clean with it. But I would also say that some of the reports in the press haven't quite got the story right because actually the government of Botswana did not hide this, but they also did not tell anyone. Mm -hmm. So there is a difference because if you're actively trying to keep a secret, that's willful. But in this case, they were putting stuff up on their website, but it was very hard to find. I mean, I found, in fact, the, the prospecting license map that led to this revelation on the Botswana government website. It wasn't easy to find, but it was there. So was it a big secret? Not really. Was it an open secret? Definitely. So they've just been a little bit economical with their, with their publicity. I think so. Mm. And, you know, that's very typical of how these operations have happened in western Colorado. Usually the first time a farmer ever knows that there's been a license issued, granted, or, or any type of interaction with them is the day that the actual company comes to their farm. Sure. There's, no, uh, there's no paper trail that arrives that you can fight before that. And this seems to be modus operandi for the industry. And I'd like to separate the industry very well from the Botswana government, because the Botswana government is doing the very best they can, and they're very interested in jobs, and they, I believe, in my opinion, after speaking with them this week, that this was done with the best interests of Botswanans in mind, and maybe not with all the facts behind exactly what the industry was doing on the ground. Except that one might have imagined that it would be their job to find out, get all the information. But interesting that you say that the industry itself um, tends to be a little bit covert, which suggests a sort of lack of transparency, which suggests that they got something to hide. Well, I think that you could construe that from that type of behavior. However, um, the industry is also very good at making sure that those types of statements aren't completely correct either. Mm -hmm. So, and so I would be very tempted to say that, in fact, they do their very best to appear to be transparent, but keep in mind that they, have a, they, they are interested in money and they are interested in the energy that they produce re- bringing revenue to their shareholders, whereas somebody like the Botswana government is interested, hopefully, and, and we know this from the past with their great conservation history, they're interested in the welfare of the people and the animals. And maybe they just simply did not know mm. that this type of activity could cause these types of effects that we're talking about here. 
difficult, isn't it? Because as soon as it starts to happen in one country, everybody can see the, those who are pro-fracking can say, well, it's happening over there, and it seems to be not a problem. But let's just get back to your film, The High Cost of Cheap Gas. Obviously, you're quite critical in some way. Has the fracking already started, and what angle have you taken on the documentary? So what we tried to do was we tried to look, and we've been working with some very good professional researchers looking at the, the actual science that is independent. So this means that the science itself is not connected in any way to the oil and gas industry. Sometimes some of the science is funded by the U.S. government, and it could be argued that there's a connection there with the oil and gas industry. But by and large, we looked at a review of this literature that's in the public eye, and we said, where do we know what are the real economics of shale gas and coal bed methane? How do they affect the communities, and who has done that research? And I think many people would be very surprised to find out that in the United States, there is only two researchers who are independent, who have done large, multi-state analysis of the economics behind this. And the economics that they discovered is quite different, as you would expect, from what the industry has been, been put forward. And often these industry reports look like they're from a university, but many times these reports are actually funded in part by the industry itself, much like the econometrics report issued by the University of Cape Town and Tony Twine about the shale gas extraction in the Karoo. And that report has come under fire in the last few months because it seems to have overblown the employment figures quite a lot, maybe in some cases by as much as 150 to 250 percent. And then we find that that's quite typical. So as a journalist, it's very important to look carefully at the facts and then to ascertain what facts can be looked carefully at because they are independent. And although it might sound like the high cost of cheap gas is a polarizing idea, it in fact isn't because this is being billed as this cheap gas, a renewable energy, or sorry, a clean bridging fuel to renewable energy. But in fact, what we're finding is it seems to be the same old oil story just kind of resold and repackaged. Now, I'm not sure that there's no place fracking shouldn't happen, and we're not saying in the film that this is an activity that should never happen. But we are trying to point out that the independent research really needs to be identified by independent, good journalists out there working. And what we wanted to do was, in the film, introduce these good researchers, University of Colorado, the American National um, um, the American NOAA, which is one of the, uh, the big research arms of the U.S. government looking into the atmosphere. And the things that we found were quite startling. For instance, everybody talks about water and fracking. But in fact, there's 45 years of air quality analysis that's been going on all over the world that is the reason why we have catalytic converters on cars. We have spent $350 trillion over the last 50 years bringing down ozone and particulates called volatile organic compounds. And we have good data about this from all over the world, and everybody compares their air quality to L.A. But it might surprise some people when they see our film that, in fact, the air quality issues around fracking are much more severe, it seems, than the water quality issues, because the air quality issues are much more easy to identify when people start looking for them. And we have such good data going back so long on air quality because it's such a big deal. And 
you know, in L.A., we've brought down the, the particulate matter, the ozone, the volatile organic compounds, to a fifth of what they were 35 years ago, while we've increased the population there by double. But there's a valley in Utah that the University of Colorado went and did a study on, and that valley has ozone and particulate and volatile organic compound levels 240 times higher than L.A. Mm. And the only industry operating there is the gas industry. So these are very severe effects that affect all of us, not if you live next to a gas well, but if you live anywhere on Earth, because methane and these chemicals are also greenhouse gases of the most potent sort. Is there, uh, three questions very briefly, is there anything to be learned for South Africa by seeing your film? How is it possible to see your film? And what's the feeling on amongst the people there in Botswana about the fracking? Is there sort of a very much of awareness? So I think... The, the first question is, um, I'll, I'll start with the third one. In Botswana, there is some awareness now. I've been on radio a couple of times talking about this, but it's only just starting to kick up. And people are starting to hear about this. And in fact, three days ago in, uh, in the Botswana parliament, they debated this issue on the floor for the very first time. So those are big steps. And I think the Botswana government is also learning a lot. They've reached out to us, and we certainly are happy to share any and all of our research with either the South African government or the Botswana government, or in fact any concerned individuals in this, this region. Which then leads me to your second question. The high cost of cheap gas will be on tour here in South Africa in the upcoming year. We will also be looking for a cinema release that will at least cover, hopefully, the seven major population centers in the country. And the last question about South Africa, this film actually starts in the Karoo, mm. and it, it really follows the story in South Africa and the big players, the, the lawyers who are going to fight this, the, the sort of big companies like Shell, they weigh in and they have a lot to say about what you know, this industry is going to look like in the Karoo. So this is really a, an important film, in my opinion, for anyone who's interested in this to learn a little bit more about fracking and to ge- be introduced to this independent science that tells us a lot more than we knew and certainly than I knew a year ago when I started making this film. Well, three good answers to, to the questions, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. And I think there's a huge amount of interest and I think there's a huge amount of confusion. So it sounds like your film would certainly shed some light on the whole science and the whole industry. Thank you very much. I'm going to give out your blog spot uh, details if anybody would like to know more, but I think we might have a link on our Facebook page. Yes, we do. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's just the high cost of cheap gas at Facebook. That's our page. Okay, excellent. Thanks very much. Thank Take you. care. Good luck. Have eh? a good afternoon. Thank you. Bye. Jeffrey Barbie. well, if you'd like to know more, you can check his Facebook page. It's The High Cost of Cheap Gas. And if you want to check his blog spot, it's Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-B-A-R-B-E.blogspot.com. The Enviro Show. Well, here on The Enviro Show, I have to say that earlier today, I went to Oxfam's public dialogue at the Slave Lodge in Cape Town. Public dialogue on, uh, on hunger, inequality and low carbon development in South Africa. And that was following on from their report, which is called You Can't Eat Electricity and how right they are. Well, amongst the extremely well-informed panellists was advocate Johnny DeLunga. He's an ANC MP. He's also chair of the Portfolio Committee of Water and Environment. And what he did was he outlined the principles of the White Paper for 2011, for which generally he said there's been a great deal of support. But 
Is there sufficient interaction between the government and the people at the grassroots community? There was a feeling at the uh, at the debate this morning that the voices of the poor were not necessarily being heard. Well, we have Advocate Delanga on the line. Hi there. Thank you very much for joining us. Good evening to you and your listeners. Thank you. Um, can we just start with You Can't Eat Electricity, the report? The idea, you know, Oxfam's purpose of this was suggesting that the principle of putting poverty at the centre of the journey towards the development of low-carbon economy would be the right way to go. What's your take on that generally? I personally agree with the that broad conclusion because, you know, as you've said in your introduction, I think broadly um, the consensus in the country is that we should be moving to a low-carbon economy or low-carbon econo- uh, growth, uh, growth path. But the issue really is that if you just replace a low-carbon growth path, uh, replacing the present uh, one that's more fossil fuel-driven one, and that the beneficiaries of that will remain the same, then there's uh, obviously some benefit in going that route. But then, of course, it's not to the broader benefit of of the community. And I think what uh, the Oxfam paper does is saying, okay, so if we in principle agree to a low growth, a low carbon uh, gr- uh, growth path, but let's do it in a way that we make sure that the poor and the marginalized also benefit, not in a general sense, but also in a specific sense. And therefore, moving from the one growth path to the other, which will of course take a lot of time, a lot of pain, and a lot of sacrifice, but in the end of the day, we must make sure that uh, it is not just the same as it uh, was previously, even if, although then it's a different kind of uh, energy mix that we have. What are you, you gave for us very briefly the sort of principles of the white paper, but what in the white paper speaks to the issue of addressing poverty and inequality at the same time as addressing climate change? Well, I think the whole, the whole debate, the whole dialogue around, around climate change uh, is one, of course, that says that climate is becoming more unstable and therefore we can expect more and more drastic and more heavy uh, climate uh, and weather conditions, severe weather conditions. Now, obviously, we all know that that could, have, of course, affect all of us. But there's no doubt that when you have severe weather conditions that the poor suffer the most. Um, you just need to go, and any time when there's been a big storm, a typhoon, um, then really the people that live in the shanties and live in uh, uh, below the water, the flood water marks, those are the ones that really suffer the most. And, of course, they also suffer a second time when they then have to rebuild their lives. Mm because the middle classes uh, at least will usually have uh, insurance and they have more capabilities to deal with these issues and the poor don't. So in a general sense, of course, if we make our uh, economy, we make our society more climate change resilient, then uh, we have to, of course, make sure that that will also apply to the marginalized and the poor, which, of course, uh, is a huge task to fulfill but uh, that, that would be the one benefit. But um, there are other interesting ideas. For example, in principle, the, the, the white paper and government has accepted that there's going to be a carbon tax. I think business and that have also accepted. It's the details of that carbon tax that are, that are really being debated. But one of the really clever ideas out of the carbon tax is to say, okay, 
So how can we actually link this carbon tax and the collection of the tax to actually benefit um, the poor in the process and the marginalized in the process? And some of the suggestions are, for example, that if one takes those tax, not necessarily ring-fence it, but actually give more uh, free electricity, which is now 50 kilowatts, whatever, put it up to 70 or whatever, out of this tax, or those people that don't have electricity, that we actually use the taxes that come from the carbon tax and actually make sure that those, the poor and the marginalized, actually then get electricity. That, I think, is a really very innovative link um, where the debate around carbon tax will then only not take a place amongst the rich and the business community, but then, of course, the poor and the marginalized have a part in that debate. And so those kind of linkages, and one of the panelists, uh, Ms. Tate, uh, was actually explaining to us how in um, big parts of the developing world at the moment there are such links being drawn where um, your movement to a more low-carbon economy uh, is done by way of uh, linkages to benefits to the poor and the marginalized, and not only the usual suspects benefiting from it, which is usually your big businesses and so on, and the ones that uh, make a profit out of uh, out of these uh, uh, schemes. So I think those are some of the linkages that are possible uh, in the process. One of the things you said at the panel discussion was that you felt that you had that in particular, that the carbon tax story was something that you had had your uh, triggered something in your mind. Do you think and one of the things that came up again and again was the issue of the voices of the poor actually not being heard by the people in power? Do you see that the that we can find a way to sort of better channel the the dialogue between the power and the people? Look, I think that uh, at the very least what is important for governments is always to dialogue with their people. Um, My worry is that I think um, our dialogue is becoming more a formalized and a ritualized process. You know, you draft a document and then you give out a document and say to people, comment on it, and and that is really your consultation process. Um, You know, I think particularly at a local government level, I think there's huge space for engaging people, particularly when you look at our legacy of apartheid and the devastation has left. You know, we can't deal with all those problems at one time. But I have found if you go and sit down with poor communities and you say, okay, in the Western Cape, for example, in Cape Town, we have this huge backlog of housing. We have this problem with uh, not proper sanitation. And we have the, the, the protests that are, are going on not maybe access to to clean and potable water and so on. Now, now the way to do it really is you can't fix that all up at once. But I do think that if you sit down with communities as a government and you say, look, there are so many people that we have to provide houses for. Uh, Even if we had the huge budget, we'd only be able to do this in a 10-year period. So what we're going to do is this is what we're going to start doing. Here we're going to start building houses and here we'll start doing this. These are our options that are available. In terms of sanitation, these are the different options that we have available. And if you start engaging people like that, um, they start understanding that something is being done. They can hold government to account and say, but now you're not doing these things when you said you will. And that creates that dialogue. I think at the moment a lot of talking down to people takes place. Um, I've been in another panel discussion recently here in Cape Town, the big debate or something it was called. 
And there you could see that that social distance that, that takes place. Because although government consults and, and, and does things, I think that uh, this process is not necessarily a meaningful one sometimes. It's, it's one that really is done on paper. And uh, I think there's a lot of more jaw, jaw, jaw that's needed where we really sit down across and start talking to communities, explaining to them the the constraints, the challenges, also what solutions we're suggesting, and in that way engage on these things. I think we need much more of that. I also think, uh, and I don't say this overcritically, that I think a lot of civil society is also just sitting back and saying, well, you know, what's government doing, what's government doing, and, you know, when you do do something, then, well, we're not happy about it. So I do think that it's also a dialogue from the other side that is necessary. Mm. And I think that my other issue and my wish is that these are true dialogues, that people actually listen to each other. I find that lots of times that you find that from government side, maybe, or even from civil society side, people have fixed positions. Yes. And you're not, I mean, you're talking, but there's not a dialogue. Yeah. Not a dialogue. The other thing about dialogue that I don't think people understand in the country is that dialogue doesn't always mean you agree. Um, you know, some people, for example, said today, yeah, but I mean, we've said so many things about nuclear and you're just not listening to that and so on. Well, the point of, you know, the point is that government is a government that has to look at all the interests in the country. It doesn't just look at some voices and listen to some voices. And it's through people being active, people raising these issues, galvanizing people around it and getting a tipping point of opinion on an issue that actually moves governments, whether, whether it's the South African government, whether it's uh, uh, any government overseas. It's really when those issues that really affect people. I mean, I always say, if you look at, for example, this whole process of us agreeing to a climate change pro- policy, which is actually very broadly endorsed in the country. But if you look at the green paper and you look at the white paper, there's a huge difference between the two. And what was the difference? <clears throat> Dialogue, inputs in Parliament from civil society, saying this paper is just not good enough. And we engage with the, with the department and said this, we agree with civil society, this paper is just not good enough. It's not actually giving us a vision and a path into the future. And there was then further consultations and a complete rewrite of the paper now to a stage where I'm actually stunned how, how broadly there's consensus around it from the left and the right. Yes. So those kind of dialogues, not just dialogue, not just paper producing of paper and saying to people, well, what do you think about this? I mean, a lot of people don't even read English. It's they, true. Advocate, know, we're going to have to leave it at that, but absolutely, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the thing about climate change is the second word. It's all about change and things that happening so fast and changing so quickly. And I think... Sometimes it's a matter of us all explaining and educating and being educated together. And the only way really is to listen to one another because sometimes people know a lot more than you do. Advocate, thank you so much. It was a fascinating discussion this morning and thank you for your time this evening. Thank you. Likewise, both of them were very good. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, Advocate Johnny DeLunga, ANCMP, but also Chair of the Portfolio Committee of Water and Environment. Don't forget, if you'd like to know more about the report, the Oxfam report, You Can't Eat Electricity, check their site, which is oxfam.org, oxfam.org, and they will be having one of these uh, dialogues coming up in Durban very soon.
You're listening to the Enviro Show. Well, what we promised you is that we would bring you, uh, we would put a bit of a spotlight on some of Cape Town's World Design Capital 2014, some of their chosen projects that specifically have a very green bias. Well, the one that we're looking at today is the uh, the two phases of the Itembala Bantu project. I think the first phase was a sandbag soup kitchen. Oh, yes. And the second phase is the Philippi Wetlands Project. Well, we have on the line with the details Leander Mpalwa. He's the director of space, Design Space Africa Architects. Got him on the line. Hi, Leander. Yes, good evening. Good thank, evening. Thank you very and much I for joining us. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about the second phase, because I think that the sandbag soup kitchen is up and running, but the Philippi Wetlands Project, can you just outline it for us? Well, um, this is one of the you know interesting and exciting projects we're invited to, to participate in. You must remember that um, the, the legislation of South Africa today is that um, in any settlement or any building that you do, you have to deal with, you know, um, Stormwater, because especially Cape Town is, is a very rainy uh, kind of climate, um, and there's a problem of dealing with stormwater, especially in the township areas. So there are areas that have been declared, you know, detention pond areas, where in a particular settlement there will be an area that is dedicated to collect water during the rainy season, and that water is allowed to be held there for a while, while it is being channeled into the stormwater in, in, in a kind of a, an organized way. Because when water crashes into stormwater, they quickly get clogged. So in Philippe, there is an area like that. And um, a donor from Germany actually supporting Itembalabandu, which is a community center which is linked to the Lutheran Church in, in Philippi. Is, is actually adjacent to such a detention point. It is at the moment a dump site. It is a very dirty place. People just throw stuff in there, and, and, and when the, the water is, is, is the water level is high in the winter months, you actually see the debt floating away. Mm. So this donor felt that, firstly, this is a harder hazard, and secondly, the area of Philippe doesn't have enough sports areas. So the idea came that maybe can't we transform this into a seasonal detention point because when there's water, it becomes a big lake. But in the summer times in Cape Town where there's no water, it becomes a horrible space where kids, you know, are actually facing health issues because it is dirty, it's a dump ground. So we're approached to, you know, do the second phase uh, of, of the soup kitchen, which is actually a youth center. Because the kitchen is also dealing with providing kids who come from school and have no proper homes or, or food. So the soup kitchen serves them, you know, food after school. But it also creates an environment for them to do um, homework and teaches them, you know, computers and all that. So the second phase is actually creating a sports center for them so that after they do their homework, they've got an aftercare situation. So we're creating an environment where the detention point becomes a sports field. It's got a mini pitch for a junior soccer pitch. It's got play areas which have got kind of water features. It's got playgrounds. We're trying to convert it into a park, actually, an urban park in Philippi. But in the winter months, obviously, it will be water closed. So it will be kind of like a lake. So we are elevating the size of this lake so that it actually has got flower gardens on the side. 
so that when there's water, you can actually sit on a terrace kind of landscape and just gaze at the lake. <laughs> but in summer, it will become a place where kids can play. And the important thing is that it is at the moment owned by the city, but the city doesn't even have the ability to maintain that space so that people don't dump on it. So the church, which is the uh, um, community facility of Itemba Labanto, has actually committed to manage that place and maintain it and make sure that it actually is a safe space. So we're fortunate to be architects who've been asked to actually work on that project. Very fortunate indeed. It sounds like a real um, social environmental project, and it's not surprising <coughs> that it's been chosen as one of the World Design Capital projects. Uh, just If I could just uh, press you a little bit more on the sandbag, soup kitchen, come youth centre, come sort of general purpose centre. The yeah. sandbag idea, I'm looking at a picture here, and they literally are piled upon pile of sandbags creating the walls. Yes, yes. Well, this is the second project we're doing uh, like that. And, and, and the reason we've done the sandbag construction on this one is because I believe an architect working in South Africa and, and a black architect at that. Um, I do not think that we're investing enough in finding alternative ways of building in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I do not think we are even connecting to the indigenous ways in which people used to build buildings in the past. I come from the Eastern Cape, where people don't even know the word architect. They've been building their own huts, their own rendezvous with thatch, but these are very good buildings in that they uh, are never hot, and, and when it's cold, they are never, you know, cold, and the roof breathes. So we've used the sandbag system because we've identified that it has got very good thermal performance. For example, the first buildings we did in Freedom Park, which was a low-cost house initiated by the design in Daba, we have found out that those buildings are now in existence for ten, for five years, sorry. And when you come inside them in a hot day in Cape Town, you will find that there's a 10-degree difference in temperature between inside and outside. Because the qualities of sand are that it doesn't transmit heat through the wall. It actually breaks the momentum of heat as soon as it hits the wall. So we, 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 we decided, and in fact, we were encouraged by the donor, who again is a foreign donor, who said he doesn't want an ordinary brick building, he doesn't want a, a concrete block building because these buildings are actually unhealthy. Um, and then he would like us to pursue the, the idea of the sandbag. So the idea here is that we are private practitioners and designers are actually trying to find ways to solve the large problem of cost in building and integrating the, 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 the communities in the building process. So in the sandbags, you don't only have a building that is good, good thermal performance, but you also engage the community and involve them in the building, as yeah, it used to happen yeah, in the past. Yeah. This is a very good thing, in our opinion. Yes, absolutely. As, as the saying goes, way to go. And uh, we'd love to get you back on the line another day, perhaps, uh, Leander, because yeah. I think the whole issue of architecture and low-cost housing is definitely something that needs to be addressed. It was something that came up this morning at the Oxfam uh, conversation about you know all sorts of buildings being imposed in areas and, and people not yeah. having a say. So I think we, we'd love to get you back on again. But in the meantime, I'm going to give out your website, and I think details of the Etemba Labantu project are on there. It's designspaceafrica.com. Is that right? Yes, 
Yes. Lovely. Yes. The Honourable Palwa, thank you. would welcome coming back on, on the house. Lovely. We'll, we'll do it. We will book yes. it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Leander Mapalwa, and uh, he's the director of designspaceafrica.com. If you'd like to check the website, incidentally, I think we're going to uh, make a pledge to get uh, seriously stuck into architecture and green building because I think it's just such an important issue. Well, to close the Enviro show tonight, as always, we have another green goodie, and our feature tonight, our green goodie, uh, chosen green goodie tonight, is comes from the Magpie Art Collective. The Magpie Art Collective being a very, very fertile collection of people in Barrydale. In fact, they're world famous for their somewhat outrageous artifacts made from waste products, and for having no fewer than two chandeliers of their chandeliers uh, hanging in the White House. Well, every year the Magpie Boys uh, wow the residents of Barrydale with their Christmas event, and we've got on the line Shane Petzer to tell us all about it. Hi, Shane. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for having us. Are you knee-deep in all sorts of exciting goodies for your event this year? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of things happening. Tell us us what it's all about. Well, about seven or eight years ago, we built the village a Christmas tree completely out of trash, and um, we involved kids from a children's NGO called netforprec.org in the village in the makeup of that tree. And, um, yeah, we installed it that night up at the local uh, clinic. And, yeah, there was a, a, a tree lighting ceremony and people singing and dancing, and it was quite an exciting event. And we've been repeating the process every year ever since. And... Um, Oh, it's just grown beyond expectation. How big is the tr- is the is the trash tree? Um, it's sort of been about five or six, sometimes seven, eight meters tall. Um, it changes slightly every year. This year we're going for a completely different design and and look for the tree. So it's a huge surprise for the village. Oh, so you're not going to give us away any details then? No. <laughs> I'm just thinking that Barrydale must be the cleanest dorp in all of South Africa because every time there's a piece of trash lying around, you guys come and get it collected. People pick it up themselves, yeah. And, and turn it into something. Recycle it. You must yeah. have very, very clean streets. Most of the time we do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you get people to help you collect? Because, I mean, that in itself is a sort of job creation, occupation for people. Well, we've got a, a recycling bin that's up on the main road, mm. um, just near our workshop. And um, people in the village bring us all of their recyclables, and uh, you'd be absolutely amazed what people are prepared to give us and what you find in the recycling bin. And all of these objects are sort of repurposed and reused and refashioned and uh, incorporated into the sort of whimsical, charming magpie chandeliers mm. that we all come to know. Whimsic, whimsical, repurposed. You know, I'm thinking it must be something of a design challenge because trash is trash, whichever way you look at it. I mean, you, once you put it together in a beautiful way, it can turn into something else. But it must be very difficult to design it without having, you know, a, a other sort of artists using other materials will have all their ingredients lined up and you just have to go with whatever comes your way. Do you, do you build as you go? Do you say, listen, guys, what we want is more X, Y, Z sort of trash? How do you plan it? Um, I think, I think the, 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 the team at the studio really, you know, they, they, they refashion the material as they find it and they re, repurpose it and upcycle it into something that's quite unexpected. And I think that that's part of the, the magic of um, the magpie process. Um, I think there is some response to, you know, what 
what the team finds and you know what they piece together. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a sort of two-way thing, you know, a response to what they see and what is used, and a refashioning and a repurposing mm. of the of the materials into something that's really quite exquisite. And a, a huge awareness raising. I mean, you mentioned Netvia Pret. I mean, that that's a, quite a busy organisation in themselves, from what yeah. I know. So yeah. it's just raising awareness for everybody. But as, uh, when is this actually happening? When is the tree lighting happening? Because it's a bit of a ceremony. I well, um, what's what's actually happened is uh, in the last four years, the hand, the world famous handspring puppet company, um, has gotten involved, and this is this is. Um, you know, turned into an incredible collaboration between Magpie, uh, Handspring Puppets, and Net for Pret, and a whole lot of other um, projects and organizations in the village. And this year, the 14th, 15th, and 16th of December is, is kind of like a festival of events in Barrydale. And, um, yeah, the 14th is an art exhibition in the village hosted by Joan Peters, um, and the 15th is a parade through the village of Barrydale and the township community of Smithsville and a, and a coming together of the, you know, the parades um, with incredible puppets all sort of uh, made by young people here in Barrydale mm. who've been coached by the Handspring puppet team. Um, so, you know, this kind of skill is starting to, um, you know, pay dividends in the community. So mm-hmm. what you see in, in the parade is, is kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a movement, you know, Magpie yeah. sort of turns trash into art and the Handspring Boys sort of turn trash into moving art. And It sounds um, quite magical. You know, I was boasting on your behalf there about the fact that they've got a couple of your chandeliers in the White House, which <laughs> is no small thing. Has somebody, has somebody, you know, shot, you know, f- made a movie of the parade and the event? If you go onto YouTube and you, you look up Barrydale Christmas Parade, mm. you're sure to find a couple of uh, videos that have been put up over the couple of years of what's actually you know, happened. Um, this year we've sort of split the events up. So it's it's an art exhibition on the Saturday, a parade on the Sunday, and a Christmas tree uh, lighting on the Sunday. On the, sorry, on the on the Monday evening. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's lots to do and lots to see here in Barrydale over that weekend. And um, yeah, well, well, now that the word's out, I think if anybody's planning to come along, they better start phoning and booking soon because there's a limited amount of places for people oh, to stay. Absolutely, um, you can find information on the Barrydale-Online.co.za website. All the Magpie-Events.mfbiz.com website, or just go to the MagpieArtCollective.com website, and you'll find the links all there. Uh, to our events page and information about the uh, annual event is, is so that's all being magpieartcollective.com magpieartcollective.com I think Kim's probably just put that on our yes she has put it on our Facebook page right now this is going to put you in a spot now Shane yeah. after the Christmas tree and after all the the fun and laughter is over what happens to the trash tree does it does it get dismantled and recycled it or? gets dismantled and recycled okay. and it gets sort of turned into all sorts of other things and parts and elements get used up in in other things. Or, uh, you know, pieces have, have sort of been re, reused for the, 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 the next Christmas tree. So 
So it's it's a kind of like a, a recycling of a recycling of a recycling. <laughs> uh, Who knows? They could end up sort of yeah. crop up in another chandelier hanging in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Shane Petzer, lovely. Have an absolute ball over that weekend. Thank 14th, you so much, 15th. Nancy. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks. 14th, 15th and 16th of December, if you find yourself near Barrydale, it's absolutely the place to go. It sounds just absolute magic. Shane Petzer, magpieartcollective.com. Well, it just remains me to say thanks very much. Thanks, team, Rob Parkin, Kim Winter and I'm Nancy Richards. And don't forget that there will be podcasts of the Enviro Show. The whole show is podcasts back to back. So if you'd like to hear anything once again, don't forget www.safm.co.za is the place to find it.